Okay, we're going to resume our seminar today on biblical finances and what the Word of God has to say about it. We've talked about uh, the will of God. Uh, we can't possibly look at all the thousands of scriptures in the Bible that relate to money, uh, land, possessions, and things that can be turned into money. Uh, but we're looking at our text scripture is Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So we're not seeking the things, we're seeking God, who's the source of all prosperity. We've talked about uh, lack and insufficiency of poverty. We looked at the destructive nature of poverty and lack, and we looked at some scriptures in the Old and New Testament concerning God's will for abundance and blessing, and you would be very hard-pressed, if not impossible, to find godly people in the Bible who obeyed God, and they lived for God, and they served God, who were not blessed abundantly. You'd be hard-pressed to find those people living in any kind of po poverty, lack, or under the curse. All the people who love God and served God and obeyed God lived under the blessing. That's what God promised. And we're going to see, now we're going to see how that carried over into the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, in Mark chapter 4, you know um, Jesus taught a parable there on the sower sows the word. And I'm sure you're all familiar with it. And he explained how the word of God is the source of all increase in the kingdom of God. That was really the subject of what he was teaching on. How the, the word of God is the source of all increase in the kingdom of God. God's word is the only source of increase and success. Spiritually, physically, or financially. Now, as you remember in this parable, there were four types of ground that he talked about and he described. And only one ground produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. And all the other ground did not produce. Now, two of these grounds that did not produce was ground that contained stones and ground that contained thorns. He referred to, you know, these are they, uh, you know, that are sown on stony ground, such as hear the word uh, and so forth. And then he said, these are they where the word is sown among thorns and the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches, lust of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So one type of ground contained stones, and one type of ground contained thorns, and that stopped 
the word of God from producing a harvest. Now, He explains why these two types of ground do not provide the proper environment for the Word of God to take root and produce a harvest of blessing in your life. And that's what all that, quite, it was quite a long parable, that's what he was explaining because when he finished, the disciples came to him and said, explain to us what this means. And that's what he was explaining, how the the different types of ground either provide the right environment or the wrong environment for the Word of God to be able to take root and produce a harvest of blessings and increase in your life. Now, the stony ground stopped the Word from taking root and going down deep in their heart to get established in their heart. And the thorns... The thorns that had already been sown into the ground or the thorns that have already been sown in your heart compete with the word of God that you hear and they choke it out so that it cannot manifest itself in your life. Now, these stones and these thorns represent things that you have been taught in past days. Things that you've been taught in church. Things you've been taught by your parents. Teachers. Experiences in life. Here are some examples of stones and thorns that have been sown into your spirit and into your mind. Healing has passed away. It's not God's will to heal everybody. Money will ruin you. Money doesn't grow on trees. Only the wicked can be rich. A spiritual person is poor in material goods. And God is only interested in spiritual things. Now those are some examples of stones and thorns that have been sown into your mind and sown into your spirit over the years. Things that you have been already taught in the past concerning money. Because that, that's, that's the subject we're talking about today. And if you don't dig up these stones and thorns and replace them with the Word of God, they will choke the Word every single time. The things that you have already been taught about money, the things you have heard preached about money, the things that your parents taught you about money. All these phrases, you know. All the things your teachers made, comments people have made over the years about money. All these things are coming through your ears, you know, and you're hearing them. Faith comes by hearing. You know, and all these things have been deposited in your spirit. They're, th they're thorns and they're stones. And all these previous teachings will choke the Word of God if you don't get them out. And it will render the Word of God ineffective in your life. Now today, in this session, <clears throat> we're going to dig up and remove a giant stone. 
and a giant thorn that is keeping the word of blessing from producing in the lives of millions of Christians. And the thorn that, and that, that we're going to dig up today is this thorn. Was Jesus really poor? Because if you do not settle that question in your mind, if you don't dig up what tradition has taught us about Jesus, if you don't dig that up and get it out of your thinking and out of your spirit and replace it with what the Bible says about Jesus, you are never, ever going to be able to receive the blessings of God because Jesus is our example. And, you know, as Jesus is, so are we. And if people have this idea that Jesus was poor, so we ought to be poor, that is a thorn, and until that thorn is removed out of their mind and their spirit, they are never going to be able to increase and enjoy the blessings of God He has for them. So that's why we're going to get the shovel of God's Word, and we're going to do some digging today, and we're going to dig that thorn out. Amen? Now, in the past, we've talked about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, other, you know, uh, godly men in the Old Testament, how they were wealthy. They were uh, obedient to God. So we're not going to cover them again this time. But let's briefly look at a few others before we come to Jesus. I just want to briefly mention a few other godly men in the Bible, some of whom wrote the Bible, uh, and that's going to lead us up to the very life of Jesus. Now Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and as you know, he was the leader of Israel in his time. He was raised in the wealth of Egypt. He later became a shepherd, and then God called him to be leader over all of Israel. And even though he led a nation of slaves, they were not poor when they left Egypt. Because in Exodus 12, if you go back and read verse 35 and 36, at the instruction of Moses, he told the Israelites, go to the Egyptians and ask them for gold, silver, and clothes. Now, you know about the wealth of Egypt. Those people were doing all right. You know, they had the gold, the silver, and the clothes. And when the Israelites asked them for them, they, the miracle is they gave it to them. <laughs> they gave them gold, silver, and clothes. So when they left Egypt, they were not poor anymore. They may have been poor for 400 years, but they weren't poor when they left Egypt. So, when the Moses and the Israelites left Egypt, they weren't poor slaves anymore. So that man, you know, even though he made a bad mistake earlier in his career, and he wound up on the backside of the wilderness, uh, you know, he had been brought up in wealth. Uh, 
And he led a nation of slaves, but when they left Israel, they were not poor. Now, David. Tradition lists David's CV as shepherd boy and eventual king of Israel. It ignores his vast personal wealth and what he did with it. In 1 Chronicles 29.3, David gave, in today's money, $1.8 billion of his own personal wealth to the building of the temple. This is over and above what the people brought. That was millions. But of his own personal wealth, he gave $1.8 billion of his own personal wealth to the building of the temple. That's how he showed his devotion and his love for God. How many times in church have you heard a sermon on the psalmist David, the billionaire who wrote the psalms? Did you ever hear that in church? No, I didn't either. I've been in church all my life. Nobody's ever described the man who wrote the Psalms as the billionaire David. But that's who he was. His son Solomon. In Kings, First uh, Kings 10 verse 10, when the queen of Sheba heard about Solomon and his connection with the name of God, she came to visit him. Now you've probably read about this before. Queen of Sheba heard about the wisdom of Solomon and the name of God uh, that he served. She brought him in today's money, the value of gold at today's price, she brought him $144 million worth of gold, precious gems, and valuable spices to give him. You can read it for yourself. 1 Kings chapter 10. Actually, let's just turn over there. And the Queen of Sheba, so she was doing pretty good herself, wasn't she? 1 Kings 10 verse 10. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices, very great store, and precious stones. Now that works out to $144 million. Uh, there came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Now, the message translation says, When she heard Solomon's wisdom and saw the palace he had built, the meals that were served, the impressive array of court officials and sharply dressed waiters, the lavish crystal and the elaborate worship, extravagant with whole burnt offerings at the steps 
leading up to the temple of God, it took her breath away. The message translation says, what she saw, the blessing and wealth of God upon Solomon, took her breath away. Now this is a wealthy, wealthy woman in her own right. Notice the words. You can, you can read it uh, in the, uh, well, the King James Version, but notice the words in the message translation. Sharply dressed waiters. Lavish crystal. Elaborate. Extravagant. These are the words used to describe Solomon and his household. These words are associated with God's standards. This was a wealthy queen, but her breath was taken away by the wealth and the wisdom that God gave Solomon. Verse 16, And King Solomon made 200 targets of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went to one oak. Uh, I'm at verse 14. Uh, I put 16. Now the, wealth, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold. In today's money, that is $720 million that came to him in one year. Hebrews 8 verse 6 says, We have a better covenant with better promises. We're born again people. Solomon was not born again. David was not born again. Moses was not born again. We have a better covenant with better promises than they had. Yet you hear church leaders brag, we don't talk about money in our church because we don't want to give people the wrong impression about God. Now was Solomon worried about giving the Queen of Sheba the wrong impression about God with all of his wealth and extravagance? You know, did he say, oh, I can't let this lady see how I live. I mean, I serve God, you know. Uh, I wouldn't want her to think I'm greedy. I wouldn't want her to think I'm wasteful. You know, I wouldn't want her, you know, to get the wrong impression about God. After all, he gave all this to me, you know. No, he wasn't worried about that. He was, his wisdom and the fact that God was with him and his wealth was a worldwide that went worldwide in the known world at that time. That's how she heard about all this and she wanted to come see it for herself because she found it hard to believe. And if you read the whole one or two chapters here, she, she, you know, she says, I heard about all this. I had to come see it for myself. And she says, true. As a matter of fact, she goes on down here to say, the half has not been told to me of what I have seen with my own eyes. That's her own words. So, the Queen of Sheba went away having experienced the wisdom and the wealth of a man blessed by one God, Jehovah. Now, I heard Billy Brim say this uh, 
on one of her broadcasts with Gloria, she was talking about how Israel is at the geographic center of the world. If you get the world map out, Israel is right smack dab in the center of the world, geographically. And she says that is not a mistake. That was designed by God. Amen. So that because uh, Europe, Asia, and Africa, all the merchants and people traveling from Asia to Africa or to Africa to Europe or whatever, they had to go through Israel. There wasn't any other way. And that's the way God made it so that all these other nations, they had to travel through Israel to get wherever they were going. And God wanted Israel to be so blessed that all these heathen nations that traveled through there saw Israel, yeah, that they were a witness and testimony to the blessing of God and all the nations of the earth would see and know that Israel was blessed because they served one God, Jehovah. Now how much more should all the world be looking at the body of Christ and say Jesus is the only true God? <laughs> you know, he's got to be. Look at how blessed his people is. Look at how prosperous and flourishing the churches are. That's the way it's supposed to be. And it's going to be, amen? And we're going to be part of it. Solomon was a living testimony to the God he served. This is the witness the body of Christ is supposed to be demonstrating to the world in the New Testament age. If it is wrong to be materially prosperous, then all of these men, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others that I haven't mentioned, all these people would have been out of the will of God. Yet it was the blessing of God on them that made them rich. And they admitted it. You know, they admitted it. Let's look at Paul. Now he's one that we sure don't talk about after Jesus. Because, you know, people talk about how poor Paul was. Well, he did suffer. He did suffer a lot of things that he shouldn't have. Uh, one reason he suffered is because the Christians didn't support him the way they should have. And they were pretty ignorant about finances as well. That's why he wrote two entire chapters in the New Testament to them on finances instructing them about finances and God's will for them. <clears throat> Paul made three extended missionary journeys to the known world. Now you don't think he walked the known world three times, do you? In his lifetime? I mean, how long would it take a man to walk even the known world at that time three times? It couldn't be done in somebody's lifetime. He obviously had the money to travel on a ship. He didn't beg for a free ride. He didn't beg for the fare. He didn't say, oh, I'm just a poor preacher. I'm suffering for Jesus. Would you please give me a ride to Cyprus? No, he didn't beg. He had the money to pay for transportation, whether it was a boat, 
or, you know, donkey, horse, whatever it was. <coughs> In Acts 20, verse 34, it says, uh, verse 33, I have coveted no man of silver or gold or a parable. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities, and to them that were with me. Paul had the resources to support not only himself, but those who were traveling with him. Because he, as you know, he did have you know, associates in the ministry who traveled with him. Being a Jew, Paul would have been a strict tither. Turn over the page to Acts 24. Um, in verse, well, here, you know, Paul was taken to the, he was put in prison and held by the Roman governor Felix for two years. And it says, um, verse 24, And after certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Now this is talking about Felix. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul that he might lose him. Paul, he kept Paul in prison for two years hoping to receive a bribe from Paul to let him out. Now, you don't hope for a bribe from a poor preacher. Paul must have had a reputation of having money and you'd also, you don't bribe a poor person. You know, you only bribe people that you know have got money. So Paul must have had the reputation, at least it got back to Felix somehow, that this man's got enough money. If you hang on long enough, you might get a bribe out of him. He might just bribe you to get out of prison. So he held Paul two years hoping to receive a bribe of money from him to let him go. But he didn't. Paul didn't do that. But he obviously must have had the money. Because you don't bribe a poor person. Paul wrote at least one-fourth of the New Testament and devoted two entire chapters of 1 Corinthians to the subject of finances. He also referred to finances in the life of the believer and Philippians 4. This is not the description of a poor preacher. Now, let's look at the life of Jesus. Was Jesus really poor? Or you could title this, What You Were Never Told About Jesus in Church. A proper examination of the Scriptures will prove this tradition to be untrue. Now this is a major thorn that's choked the Word of God 
out of the hearts of people and we're going to dig it up. Religion does not want you to identify with your new life in Christ. It wants to keep you in a state of sin consciousness, poor in spirit, and poor in the bank account. Religious tradition wants you to identify with a poor, barefooted, homeless man from Nazareth called Jesus, who wore a white sheet, had long scraggly hair, with 12 other homeless looking people following him around for handouts from town to town. That's the Jesus religion wants you to identify with. Your mind will not give up the poor Jesus image until the stones and thorns of traditional teaching have been dug up to give room for the Word of God to reveal to you that Jesus was not poor. Now, let's start at the birth of Jesus. Let's turn over to Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was treated like a king from the time he was born. His birth was announced by a host of angels. Yes, Jesus was born in a stable, but he did not stay there. It was a temporary circumstance that Joseph had no control over. They had come to town to pay their taxes and there were no vacant hotel rooms available. So that's how they wound up in the stable. Now let's look at Matthew 2 verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Now notice, here's another tradition. Whenever you go to a Christmas program, a Christmas nativity, or you receive a Christmas card with wise men on it, how many wise men do you always see? Right. Tradition teaches us that there were three wise men. The Bible does not say there were three wise men. It says wise men came from the east. It doesn't say there were three of them. Now, the way that tradition got started, wise men brought three gifts. So religion assumed if there were three gifts, there were three wise men. That's not what the Bible tells us. There could have been 10 wise men. There could have been 50 wise men. They brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now each wise man could have brought all three gifts. E each one could have had three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But tradition, and our tradition teaches us that this wise man had a little box of trinkets and the other wise man had another little box of trinkets and the third wise man had another little box of trinkets and they came in and they handed their box of trinkets 
to Jesus. That's what tradition teaches us. That's not what the Bible says. Let's just see what the Bible says. It says they came to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus was not born in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. So, when the, by the time the wise men got to Jesus, they weren't in Bethlehem in a stable anymore. But whenever you go to a nativity play, or you see a Christmas card, it always shows wise men at the stable, in the picture with the shepherds and so forth, all there with baby Jesus in the stable. But the Bible says the wise men were not there in Bethlehem at the stable. They came after they had moved to Jerusalem. And they believed, Bible scholars believe, Jesus would have been one to two years old by this time. Now, let me, let me show you. Verse 11 of Matthew 2. And when they were come into the house, it doesn't say when they were coming to the stable. It says when they were coming to the house, they, the wise men, saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. So Bible scholars believe that Jesus was probably one to two years old because as you remember, when Herod found out, you know, about Jesus and it scared him so bad, he ordered all the, the male babies in Jerusalem, one to two years old, to be, born, to be killed. So Jesus would have had to have been in that age group. He would have had to have been one to two years old by the time the wise men got there. It says... They were coming to the house. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their trinkets, no, when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So there were three gifts. We don't know how many wise men there were. Like I said, there could have been 10, there could have been 50, but they brought three gifts. They could have brought three gifts each. Now, when they opened their treasures, as a young child, Jesus received gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh from foreign kings. A king's wealth was represented in his gift. As we've seen from the gifts that the Queen of Sheba brought Solomon. You know, there was a protocol, and there still is today. You know, when one diplomat, ambassador, visits another ambassador, or one president of a country visits another president of a country, they always take them a gift, you know. And it's a substantial gift, usually. Um, but it, you know, it Back in these days, it represented the wealth of the giving king, and it also represented the stature of the receiving king. So if the receiving king felt like the gift wasn't good enough, he felt slighted. You know, so in order for that not to happen, they gave them big gifts, like we have seen 
the Queen of Sheba gave Solomon. So these gifts were not trinkets. These gifts visit, these kings visit, and the value of the gifts they brought served to emphasize Jesus' kingly identity and that he was acknowledged as a king by the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Now, back, I think it was about 2003, I went to London to hear a man, a guest speaker at a, a church in London. And this wasn't a traditional church. Uh, and the man speaking was named Peter Daniel. And I don't know if you've heard, heard of him, but he's a Christian businessman from Australia, and he's probably the wealthiest man in all of Australia. Uh, and he was saved in a Billy Graham crusade back in the 60s. So he's not really a word man as such. But he has some revelation on prosperity and what the Bible says about it. And I heard him speak. And he shared some information that will shake the stones and thorns of religious tradition right out of your mind. And he said he had the documentation for this that he had given to the pastor, and I would love to have it. But I went back to my notes, because this so shocked me, I wrote it down. He said, the value of the gifts these kings brought to Jesus was in the range of $400 million in today's money. Now that's not trinkets. These are treasures of a king. A professor of the Bible at Wake Forest University has written about um, two, the two resins, frankincense and myrrh, and he says they would have been at the height of their value around the time of Jesus' birth. In modern money, frankincense would have cost $500 per pound of weight. Myrrh would have cost $4,000 per pound of weight. That's four times the price of gold in today's society. So even if these kings brought one pound of frankincense and myrrh each, that's not chicken feed, is it? $4,000 4,000 pounds per pound, $4,000 per pound. Now in Matthew 2.11, it says, When they came in the house, they fell down and worshipped him and opened their treasures. When a king opens his treasures to you, you are funded. We don't know how much money Jesus had before he was two years old. But after the wise men left, he had money. Now, several years ago, I was in another church where I heard Rick Renner speaking. And you probably know, you've probably seen him on the Believer's Voice of Victory once in a while. But he's a good Bible teacher and he's a Bible historian. And he was not preaching on the subject of biblical finances, but he shared some background information that gives us more insight into the environment in and around Nazareth where Jesus grew up. 
Now, he talked about a city two and a half miles from Nazareth called Sephorus. He talked about this city called Sephorus, two and a half miles from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. It was the largest city in Galilee at the time, and it came under the rule of Herod, and he chose it as his capital or his seat of government during Jesus' life. He said everything was affected by this city in northern Israel. Now, the Bible refers to the occupation of Joseph and Jesus as carpenter. Now, if, if you look that word up in the concordance, which I did, it's the Greek word T-E-K-T-O-N, tekton. Now, Rick Renner and other Bible scholars suggest that this occupation was not limited to woodwork, like a carpenter would be limited to building with wood. But it would also include highly skilled craftsmen who inlaid, mo inlaid mosaics, lead construction sites, men who cut stones, and inlaid precious gems in jewelry. Now, I had another, another uh, newspaper article here. Here it is. Uh, that kind of confirms this information that Rick Renner was talking about. This was written by a GP from London. Now, he's done some study along this line. And this article says, Jesus was really the son of a middle-class architect. Now, we never heard that in church either, had we? We heard that poor... You know, poor carpenter Joseph, you know, he nails a few chairs back together, you know. That is not what the word carpenter meant. They were also highly skilled stone cutters, inlaid mosaics, precious stones and gems. One of the mosaics uncovered. And this town of Sephora had over one million stones in it. Just one mosaic had over one million stones in it. So this was very highly skilled work. Rick Renner says that Joseph was the manager of a construction site in Sephora, and other scholars also believe that Joseph and Jesus helped to build this town or reconstruct it. Apparently it had suffered some damage or, you know, in a war or something. It is how Jesus knew about the rich, how he knew about the Pharisees and the hypocrites. It had the largest banking system in the world. Mary's parents lived in Sephora and there were no poor people there. Jesus did not grow up in a small close-minded community. So I, you can see how these 
this religious teaching is beginning to be pulled back and we're beginning to see the truth of the environment and society that Jesus really grew up in. Now let's turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This is the account of the woman at the well. Verse 8. Uh, well, verse 7. There cometh the woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Now, we've always thought that when Jesus and his staff got hungry, they just stood around waiting for a handout from someone to buy their lunch. No, if Jesus came to our town, if Jesus came to Guilford, he would probably buy our lunch. He sent the disciples to buy meat or food for his entire staff, including the twelve disciples and probably some of their families. Let's turn over to Luke, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9, verse 12 and 13. And when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve and said unto him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns and country around about and lodge and get victuals, for we are here in a desert place. But he said unto them, Give ye me, give ye them to eat. And they said, We have no more but five loaves and two fishes, except, or unless, we should go and buy food for all these people. Now, the disciples assumed that Jesus had the money to physically go buy food for 5,000 people, or over 5,000 people. 5,000 men. These disciples took Jesus literally, so he must have had the money for them to go buy it. But of course we know he was not... He had a different plan. He fed these 5,000 supernaturally with the five loaves and the two fish. But the disciples took him literally. Does he really want us to go buy food for all these people? So he must have had the money, or they must have known he had the money to do it. Now look in Luke 9:58. Some people think Jesus did not have a house to live in. And they use this scripture to prove it. Now let's start at verse... Well, we won't go all the way back for time's sake, but let's go at 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Now, when people use this verse to prove that Jesus didn't have a house, 
They're using it out of context. Let's go back to verse 51. This is, uh, this is in Samaria. Jesus was in Samaria. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. Now Jesus had people on his staff that were like an advanced team. He couldn't go on television, you know, uh, and advertise or internet and say, I'm going to be in London on the 10th of May. He had advanced teams that went out, much like Billy Graham. Billy Graham would send a team of people over to England months in advance of when he's coming. And they began to plan, you know, the trip and where it's going to be and advertise it and all that in advance before Billy Graham got here. Well, this much the same thing Jesus was doing. He sent out an advanced team to villages ahead of him to start spreading the word that Jesus is coming. Go gather up the sick. Go gather up the demon-possessed. Everybody that needs prayer. Everybody that's crippled. Jesus is going to be in this town next Monday at 9 o'clock in the morning. And that was their job to go out in advance and start letting people know when Jesus was going to be there and where he was going to be. Now, in this particular case, he was in Samaria. And it says in verse 53, And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. The Samaritans said, we don't want Jesus coming to our town. We're canceling his meeting. So, in that context, that's what made James and John so mad. And they said, Lord, let us command fire to come down from heaven and consume these people. You know, and that's when Jesus said, you don't know what matter of spirit you are. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. This village, Samaria, would not have Jesus hold a meeting in their town. And in that context, when the man came up to him and said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus said, My meeting in this town has been canceled. I don't have any place to stay tonight. I can't stay in this town tonight because my meeting has been canceled. We've got to go to another village. Now that is the context Jesus said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was saying, my meeting in this town has been canceled. I don't have a place to stay. He was not saying, I don't have a house and I don't have a place to live. I'm just a poor homeless preacher. But that's the way tradition has explained this. And that's what always happens when you don't rightly divide the word and you take scripture out of context, you get into error and you reach the wrong conclusion. Now, 
Let's go to uh, um, let's go to John one, and then I think we'll take another little stop. John one. Verse 35. Again the next day, after John stood, the two of his disciples and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus, this is talking about John the Baptist, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now look at verse 38. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? And the disciples said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? In today's English we would say, Where do you live? Where do you live? Jesus said, Oh, I don't have any place to live. I just... I just go from, you know, town to town and, you know, I just beg for a place to stay and, you know, I'm really homeless. I don't have any place to live. No, he said, come and see. Come and see where I live. Come and I'll show you. Jesus had a house and it was big enough to have guests stay overnight. Now, let's turn to Mark chapter 2. Now, this is just, um, this is just a possibility, but it is a possibility. In Mark 2, verse 1. And again, he entered into Capernaum. Now, have you guys been to Israel, Peter and Ann? Have you guys been to Israel? No. Okay. Well, Capernaum, you know, is in Galilee, and it's not that far from Nazareth, and it was the ministry headquarters of Jesus. So it was like his headquarters, ministry headquarters. Uh, it's also in Capernaum where Peter lived. He has a house, the ruins of it is just, just opposite almost of the synagogue that that was there, the synagogue that Jesus would have taught in. Now, in verse 1, And when he entered into Capernaum after some days, it was noise that he was in the house. Uh, it doesn't say that he was in a house or he was in Peter's house. We know Peter had a house also in Capernaum. It just says he was in the house. So it could have been Jesus' house. Now, this is the story of, you know, the four men who lowered the man down. They couldn't, they were so, the house was so crowded with people, they couldn't physically get in, and they were carrying the, the man with the palsy. And what does it say? They went up on the roof, and they did what? They tore the hole in the roof, tore the tiles off, and they lifted this man down into the house so that they could get to Jesus. Now, this is just a possibility. 
But this might explain, if this was Jesus' house, this would explain why the owner did not get upset when the men tore the tiles off the roof to lower the sick man in, down into the midst. If there's anybody else, they would probably said, what are you doing to my house? <laughs> you know, how dare you tear the roof off my house? Do you know how long it took me to build that roof? Yeah, that's what you do. Yeah. If it was his house, he wouldn't have been upset, would he? And you was going to happen before. Yeah, and he could have repaired it. Yeah. He's a carpenter. He could have built his own house. Why not? If he helped, if he helped rebuild that city of Sephoris, he certainly could have built his own house. Yeah, and you know it wasn't a shabby house either. If he built it, Jesus never did anything shabby. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 